This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. This edition of Update One, we highlight two programs the club hosted earlier this month on World Press Freedom Day. I'm Mike Hempen, a co-vice chair of the Broadcast Podcast team. Maria Russa has been honored by the club for her press freedom efforts. She talked to press club member Jason Rezaian about the need for press freedom around the world. Greetings and welcome to the National Press Club. I'm Jason Rezaian, a press club member and global opinions writer for the Washington Post. I'm honored on this World Press Freedom Day to introduce Maria Ressa, founder of Rappler, an innovative news site based in the Philippines. Maria will tell us about her ongoing court cases, which finds her in a courtroom seemingly every week as she defends herself against phony charges manufactured by the Philippine government as a form of censorship. Maria is a tireless advocate for press freedom around the world, and to her, the charges she's fighting in the Philippines should serve as a grave warning to all who believe in the importance of press freedom in a free society. Um, I'm more than happy to see uh, Maria again. She's a friend, uh, someone I look up to, uh, and I'm just glad to have this opportunity to speak with her tonight. So Maria, take it away. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Jason, it is so good to always see you, you know, because to me, you're kind of, you, you, you prove to me you can come out the other side, you know, and, uh, and so I go through. I, so I'm so, I, first of all, thank you. Thank you for helping us shine the light again. Um, and I guess, you know, I'll, I'll go over it, very short, uh, you know, why uh, I feel there's so much at stake for our world today, um, what we do this year, I think, could potentially determine what our next decade will look like. Uh, being a journalist has never been as dangerous as it is now. And I have three points that I want to share. Uh, first, my context, why the lessons are hard earned. Second, I'll define the problem. And while <sighs> While yes, the government is part of it, I think the enabling factors are not. In fact, they come from you, from the United States. And then finally, I'll share some of the principles we're using to live our way into the solution because we have to, you know. So why should you care about the Philippines? Because for the sixth year in a row, Filipinos spent the most time online and on social media globally. 100% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. According to Hootsuite and We Are Social, YouTube this year overtook Facebook as the top social media site in Manila, in here, in the Philippines. And because of the pandemic, new users are coming online in Southeast Asia at this blistering pace, adding 40 million new internet users last year compared to 100 million the five years before that, right? So as this is happening, it is getting harder and harder to hold power to account. In less than two years, you talked about this, Jason, the Philippine government filed 10 arrest warrants against me. That's 10 criminal charges. I posted bail 10 times because I'm doing my job. Last June, I and a former colleague were convicted of cyber libel 
for a story we published eight years earlier at a time the, the law we allegedly violated didn't even exist. You know, all told, these charges, all the charges I face carry a cumulative penalty of more than 100 years in prison. I mean, that's crazy, right? It's crazy, but it's not all bad. Okay, why? I bring three strands together that help me find a way forward. First, I head our business in tech, so I'm forced to evaluate the changes and to build for the future. Second, we're proudly, and I'm proudly an investigative journalist, and then finally, I'm the target of attacks online and in the real world. So that is both a blessing and a curse. I get to see these evolving tactics and I tell you about them. You know, you can hear about some of them, you can read about them because on March 8th this year, the International Center for Journalists analyzed nearly half a million social media posts and showed that 60% of those attacks against me were aimed to tear down credibility. In fact, if you look at the cloud, liar is the largest one there. So it's meant to tear down trust in my reporting, in Rappler's reporting. The other 40% are visceral, they're personal, sexist, misogynistic attacks. That's just meant to shame me and to pound me to silence. Well, okay, so it's not working, <laughs> not silent yet, but this brings us to the problem that we really need to solve. And um, there's this great quote from an American biologist, E.O. Wilson, he, he studied emergent behavior, ants. He said it best. He said, the crisis that we're facing, we're facing paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And this goes to something, you know, Jason, you know, I've been talking about this forever. It feels like Cassandra and Sisyphus combined, <laughs> um, social media. Social media has become a behavior modification system and we are Pavlov's dogs, experimented on in real time with disastrous consequences. Facebook is the world's largest distributor of news and yet studies have shown that on social media, lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than really boring facts. You know, we actually spend our entire careers learning how to make facts, how to make you interested in facts, how to tell good stories. Here we are, the very platforms that deliver the facts to you are biased against facts, biased against journalists. They are by design dividing us and radicalizing us. I'll give you an example that we lived through in the Philippines. One technical decision made by every social media platform to grow with algorithms recommending friends of friends, right? So they've all realized that's the most efficient way through A-B testing. So in 2016, after Rodrigo Duterte used social media to help him get elected, this friends of friends algorithm, along with his divisive us against them rhetoric, well, they did this. At this point, we all agreed on the facts. But if you're pro-Duterte and you were getting recommendations for friends of friends, you move further right. If you're anti-Duterte, you move further left. And over time, the chasm grew. You know, substitute pro-Trump, anti-Trump, right? I mean, the similar styles of leadership. These algorithms also radicalize, right? Like, remember the 9-11 conspiracy theories and how they, how they, you know, if you watched a video on a 9-11 conspiracy theory, you're going to get shown another one. Um, one of the moms in a do-it-yourself Facebook group, actually, uh, this is anecdotal, right? But but she, this this Facebook group was, um, was about making your own baby food. Uh, 
And, and one of the moms there, uh, because they were in a, a DIY Facebook group, the recommendation uh, that she got was to join an anti-vax group. Mm. And she clicked on that recommendation. The next one she got was QAnon. Mm. So this is the impact of a business yeah. model, Shoshana Zuboff called surveillance capitalism. When a system gathers your data, knows you better than you know yourself, and serves your most vulnerable moment to a message to a company, that's the new advertising, or to a government, that's the new propaganda. And this is not like the old days, right? In today's world, a lie told a million times becomes a fact. You've heard me say this, Jason. Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without any of these three, democracy as we know it, and beyond that, all meaningful human endeavor becomes impossible. Without facts, we have no shared reality, and it becomes impossible to tackle the existential problems we face. Climate change, coronavirus, the battle for truth. We're living in the matrix, fed an illusion we're predisposed to believe, determined by power and money. And our shared reality is splintered into more than 3 billion Truman shows. Okay, so what are we gonna do? How do we survive? It's been nearly five years for us in Rappler that we've been living through this. In order to live our way into the answer, we focus on three pillars, technology, journalism, and community, right? On technology, we have two initiatives. We're working, I'm working very hard with global, global groups to find regulations, regulations, that's a shift for me, Jason, right? We, we, we first started talking and I thought, you know, enlightened self-interest would work for the social media platforms. It, it hasn't worked. Uh, we need to leave the best of what they do and put guardrails on the worst of text manipulations. So last year I co-chaired the Infodemics Working Group with former EU Parliament member Marit Kashake. In, in our paper that was released by the Forum on Information and Democracy, we recommended a dozen systemic solutions more than 250 tactical steps. I'm watching closely the evolution of the EU's Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, the UK's online harms bill, the US debate on Section 230. You know, what you do, what you do matters so much to us because in the end, these are American companies. Um, separately, we're building our own tech that protects the public sphere. That's got to be part of it, that protects the facts. We rolled out our new platform called Lighthouse last year on World Press Freedom Day. It is painful. And we continue to build, not just for distribution, but for communities to grow. When we created Rappler, my elevator pitch was that we build communities of action. The food we feed our communities is journalism. We need to help independent news organizations survive. So in many ways, the virus of lies in the virtual world is more dangerous than the coronavirus, because this is highly contagious. And when you get infected, you become impervious to facts. It feeds on our fears. It changes the way you look at the world. You become angrier, more isolated, and it erupts in events like January 6th on Capitol Hill. Like a drug addiction, it will take years for rehabilitation to cure this, right, and bring back a shared reality. So the longer we wait for action, the more time it will take to heal these divisions. Information operations 
Russian disinformation, Chinese disinformation that have targeted me. They target the fracture lines of society. And what they try to do is to pound it open. Leaders try to heal this decision. We have to act. We have to come together and realize that an atom bomb has been dropped on our information ecosystem. And just like the world did after World War II when it created NATO, Bretton Woods, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we need to upgrade our medieval institutions to put guardrails against the godlike technology that is manipulating our biology, our paleolithic emotions. I've jumped out of a plane. I'm hoping my parachute will open high enough for me to survive. And for lessons on what to do during these crazy times, I look to you, Jason, for everyone else listening, please. This is the time to act because what you do today will create the tomorrows that we will live through. Powerful words from uh, someone who is on the front line of this battle and has been for a long time. Thank you for everything that you do. We'll be watching everything that happens and, and standing with you in solidarity uh, as you do with us. The NPC used World Press Freedom Day to provide a unique perspective on the case of Austin Tice, a journalist who has received the club's highest honor for press freedom, but who has been held in Syria for more than eight years. Club President Lisa Matthews spoke with Tice's 11-year-old niece. Hello, and welcome to the National Press Club. I'm Lisa Nicole Matthews, 114th president of the National Press Club and assignment manager for U.S. Video at the Associated Press. As most of you know, the National Press Club has a special bond with the family of Austin Tice. We've been working to bring him home from Syria where he has been unjustly detained since 2012. While it has been difficult in the past to know how the U.S. government could best help Austin, it is obvious the time is now for direct engagement. The Biden administration is experienced in these matters, and now is the time for them to push forward in a negotiation to release Austin. In the meantime, we work to find ways to keep Austin's name in the news and to encourage others to learn about this case. Together with Austin's family, the National Press Club Journalism Institute, and our press freedom friends and partners, we've held press conferences, canvas restaurants and businesses across the country, written letters, and knocked on every door on Capitol Hill, and enlisted the help of award-winning chefs like Chris Shepard, Andy Ricker, Carla Hall, Patty Hinnich, and Jose Andres. Today's program is a little different, but one we hope you will find incredibly inspiring and meaningful. So without further ado, let me introduce my special guest for today. Austin's 11-year-old niece, Maya Edinburgh. Maya is joining us from her home in Houston, Texas, and she's going to share what it's been like growing up without her uncle and why it is so important that Austin come home soon. Maya, it is so good to see you. Thank you for joining Thanks. us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you too. Good to see you. So, Tell our viewers and our listeners why you are with us today. Uh, I'm here today to talk about my uncle, Austin, and how he's been missing for, or not necessarily missing, held captive for eight years. 
in Syria and why it would be so important to have him home. And why would it be so important for you to have him home? I feel as though, um, especially for me and my brothers and sisters and my little cousins, that it would be great to have him in our lives because he's missed so much already. And it'd be really nice to have him here to see us grow up and help us with things that we need help with and to go to him and just have him like a normal uncle. Yeah, I bet. What would be one of the first thing that, things that you would want to do if Austin were back in the United States? What would you want to do with him? I would want to show him things that I like to do and kind of bond and connect with him in a way that I haven't been able to do and really just let him in on what's been going on. Talk about some of the things that you've done with some of your other family members that you really wish that Austin could be a part of right now, like Christmas, Thanksgiving. Yeah, Christmas especially because that's a really uh, fun and important time in our family where we all get together uh, and we hang out. And there's the trip that we take often, hmm. like every other year or so to Gulf Shores, Alabama. And it's like a big family trip and for like a week and we all hang out. And I'm not sure he's ever come with us to those. And so that'd be a really fun to dress in to start with him. Yeah, that's awesome. Family get togethers are so important. What have you been told about Austin and his career that you might like to do yourself? Because I think that we were talking a little bit about you wanting to be a journalist or a communicator like Austin? Yeah, I really like that um, he's informing people when he's a journalist, writing those articles and telling people what's been going on in the world. And I think maybe um, that could be something that I could pursue as well in my career. Knowing that Austin has a family to come home to, what message do you want to send to the people who are holding him? I tell them that he needs to be here and he needs to be with us and not miss anything and that we love him and it's extremely unfair for him to not be here. How old were you when, when your Uncle Austin went missing? Do you know? Um, I think I was three. Wow. Yeah, three. I had just turned three. What do your parents and grandparents say about, about Austin and, and how much they want to see him come home? Um, they just say that it's really important to have him here and that especially they don't want him to miss our traditions. Well, this has been really good talking to you and getting your perspective on the connection that you want to have, the connection that you, you know, don't have, but that you want to have with Austin. And uh, we really, really appreciate you sharing your story. So thank you, Maya. That concludes our look back at two press club events on World Press Freedom Day. I'm Mike Hempen.
Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.